This podcast is called Power Corrupts, named after the famous quote from Lord Acton. But is that claim actually true? Does power actually corrupt people? Or is it just that corruptible people are drawn to power? Do genes have anything to do with who develops a thirst for power? Why do human societies have such steep hierarchies in the first place? Why do height and facial appearance have so much to do with who we select to be our leaders? How does power change your brain chemistry? Why do so many people in positions of authority seem to be psychopaths, from politicians to the tyrants who rule homeowners associations? And are drivers of eco-friendly Priuses actually less likely to be corruptible jerks than drivers of BMWs? My book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, tries to answer those questions, and many more. I did some pretty weird stuff while researching it, too, including interviewing Tony Blair on Zoom, sipping wine in Paris with the daughter of a cannibal emperor, chatting with bee, wasp, and baboon experts about corruption in the animal kingdom, and corresponding with a psychopathic janitor in prison. Corruptible comes out on November 9th, but pre-orders are crucial to a book's success. So if you want to support the podcast and my work, please consider ordering a copy. And I'll be releasing an excerpt of the opening chapter from the audiobook, read by me, on the November 2nd edition of Power Corrupts, so you can get a taste for it. If you pre-order Corruptible now, or if you already have, please go to my website, brianpkloss.com, click on Corruptible in the top right corner, and then fill out the form. If you do that, I'll send you a link to an exclusive episode of Power Corrupts that won't be released publicly. You can also support our work by going to patreon.com powercorrupts and signing up to get early access to episodes and other bonus content. And for the top tier of supporters, we'll even be hosting a live Zoom event for a small number of you on October 20th. Thanks for listening and for your support. All too often, we cover stories in which the bad guys win. They get away with it. The corruption continues. This isn't one of those stories. Today we're covering two stories in which the bad guys lost in a comically humiliating fashion. It's a tale of two modern-day pirates on opposite sides of a continent who were destroyed partly by clever law enforcement operations, but mostly by their own stupidity. Last week, we talked about historical piracy, the Blackbeards and Long John Silvers of the world. This week, we're talking about their modern-day counterparts, the vicious hijackers who take over ships, seize hostages, and ruin the lives of innocent people. We're going to start today's episode off the coast of Somalia, where the most famous modern pirates have emerged, the ones that were depicted in Hollywood blockbusters like Captain Phillips. But we're also going to look at more recent developments, including a sting operation that took down a pirate in one of the new frontiers of 21st century piracy, namely off the coast of Nigeria in West Africa. And in the process, we're going to learn how a series of foolish decisions caused these pirates to walk the plank straight into a jail cell. We're also going to touch on a question that often haunts law enforcement. How do you bring people to justice across international borders when their governments can't or won't capture them?
tracking the sort of pirate kingpins was always an area of fascination. This is James. My name is James Bridger. James used to work in maritime security consulting, in which he tracked major piracy operations. It meant that his day-to-day life often involved keeping up to date with shipping movements, attempted and successful hijackings, and the resolution of those harrowing crises. For a while, plenty of pirates operated with a certain level of impunity. They kept taking over ships and getting paid hefty ransoms to return the crew safely. Then, as was famously depicted in the Captain Phillips film, the United States Navy cracked down on piracy, using deadly force. And that changed the game substantially. But still, something bothered James. Particularly once you did start to see you know, a more robust international naval military response, and you did see the you know, arrest and jailing of a number of pirate foot soldiers, it always seemed like the kingpins at the top were untouched. The big fish, or as we're about to see, the big mouths, kept raking in cash, while the minnows, the pirates who were scraping to get by, got caught or even killed. So over the years, James grew particularly interested in the kingpins, and in one kingpin in particular, a man known as Efwaini, or Big Mouth. It's a very small thing, these kind of, everyone has a nickname, and it's usually based on what we would consider like a rude observation about, you know, what you look like or what you sound like. And Big Mouth for him, you know, I've actually heard it both ways. Like you could see it as like the Big Mouth, oh, you know, you're, you're talking too much and you're boasting too much. And ultimately that's what got him in trouble. But I've also heard it sort of meant like as like crybaby, as being like another version of that. So take your pick between the two. I mean, he probably was the biggest fish of in his time. Efwaini stood out because he had a different background from most of the other pirates. He was from a region central Somalia, allegedly during the early 1990s and, and late 80s before the Civil War. He was a civil servant working in what was then the Somali federal government. Now, unlike a lot of sort of the early waterborne pirate leaders, you know, he wasn't a fisherman. But Efwaini understood early on that piracy could be a lucrative profession if you only approached it more methodically, like a business. He saw what these sort of fishermen turned pirates were doing in northern Somalia and could see, you know, initially these were sort of a cottage industry of taking fishing trawlers, getting tens of thousands of dollars ransom for them. You know, by the early to mid 2000s, those tens of thousands had become hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I think he really saw the business opportunity there that no one had sort of put in a grander scheme. Big Mouth began to build a pirate empire. He started recruiting, notably across clan lines, which was a pretty impressive accomplishment to be able to pull together these sort of existing piracy networks from northern and central Somalia. One of the things that you start to recognize when you study the world of corrupt criminals and kingpins is that a lot of illicit activity, particularly new forms of illicit activity, like modern pirate hijackings, is dominated by amateurs. The reason for that is simple. The best and the brightest usually have other prospects, and they don't go into high-risk operations. The downsides are too great. So if they have another option, they take that instead. So when a new form of criminality emerges, Its initial stage is often full of blunders and mistakes, and that leaves a lot of low-hanging fruit to be picked by someone with a more sophisticated approach to criminality. For Somali piracy, that sophisticated innovator was Big Mouth. And right off the bat, 
he figured out that the standard playbook used to hijack ships was highly inefficient. The boats you're using to actually do the hijacking are called skiffs, and that's, you know, a small, long fiberglass boat with a powerful outboard engine, or two if you can. And typically, you know, they would gun those so hard they would destroy the, the motors of them in the course of the operations. But of course, you've got very limited range with those, even if you're like loading up with gas, you know, you're not able to make it very far offshore. Before Big Mouth, any ships that wanted to avoid Somali pirates just needed to steer a bit away from the Somali coastline, out of range of these little skiffs. But that era of relative security soon ended. He also pioneered the use of what they called motherships, where you're taking sort of like a captured fishing trawler, you're loading up your smaller skiffs behind that, and then you can go hundreds of miles out into the sea. Then once you find your target, then you deploy the skiffs to go and attack and hijack it. So that um, you know, dramatically expanded the range. It allowed the pirates to go after these ships that were deliberately taking a much wider route going around the Horn of Africa. He really professionalized it, is I think what he's most famous for. It's not He wasn't really a pirate on the boat himself, but certainly the money and like the political networking behind it. Now here's the thing about Big Mouth. He had a legitimate business of sorts. It wasn't just about piracy. And so he had this front operation, which sort of gave him a veneer of legitimacy. He actually had sort of a business empire that spanned a lot of North Africa, the Middle East, all the way to India and Malaysia. That's important for our story, so keep that in mind. Now, we're going to veer away from Somalia briefly, and I'm going to tell you about a man named Mohammed Aden, nicknamed Tise. Tise grew up in Somalia, but emigrated to the United States when he was 22. He then settled where most Somalis in America settle, in my hometown of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And by 2008, Tisei's story seemed to be the epitome of the American dream. He was getting a master's degree at the University of Minnesota. He had three kids. He had just launched a healthcare startup. But Tisei still felt a strong connection to his homeland. In particular, he felt a strong connection to his own region of Somalia, a 5,000 square mile area that had been effectively lawless since the national government collapsed in the early 1990s. With other Somalis who had fled the same area, he participated in a conference in Dubai, organized by refugees from the same region. And they came up with a plan to try to bring some order to the chaos of the homeland that they had fled. But they needed somebody to implement the plan. And the delegates to the conference, well, they picked Tise. They asked him to leave Minneapolis behind and to become the regional governor back home. He reluctantly agreed. There's a lot of detail that I'm going to skip over here for the sake of time, but suffice it to say, Tise had a rocky road in gaining control over his home region. But eventually, after throwing around a bit of muscle, including one incident in which his armed militia killed several people during a dispute, he started to claw back control from the lawlessness and criminal gangs that had previously reigned in the area. But there was still one big issue. Pirates. The pirate kingpins were still major local power brokers. Every time that the fledgling government tried to do something, the pirates undercut it. So Tise turned to the national government to ask for help. And they put him in touch with a prominent businessman who was likely to have some leverage with the pirates. You guessed it, Efweni, or Big Mouth. By this point, his star had risen quite high in Somali piracy. 
his name was attached to a number of very prominent hijackings. So, you know, he was starting to build a profile. One of the hijackings that Big Mouth was suspected of facilitating was of a Belgian ship called the Pompeii. After 68 days of tense negotiations, a helicopter hovered over the vessel, where 10 crew were being held hostage at gunpoint, and the helicopter dropped $8 million in ransom money on the deck of the ships. These crimes are serious. They imprint psychological damage and trauma on the victims for years, often forever. If you're interested in understanding how that feels, go back to season one of this podcast and listen to the episode on ransom. It's a horrible, life-altering experience for the victims. But for our story, the point is this. A guy with a track record as one of the most notoriously successful international pirates was brought in to help stop piracy. But in one of those weird, stranger-than-fiction twists that the real world often produces, Fwaini actually put his money where his big mouth was, and he started to help combat piracy. The unlikely pair, the pirate kingpin and the dad from Minnesota, set out to create a sort of pirate rehabilitation program that would retrain pirates for other jobs. It sounds a bit absurd, like a job center for people who mostly had skills at hijacking ships with guns. But it started to work. That's partly because their work happened to coincide with an important development on the high seas off the Somali coast. Navies were starting to use deadly force against pirates, and private companies were starting to send armed guards on their ships to shoot back when a pirate skiff started coming toward them at speed. Piracy, which had for a while been easy money, started to become an unattractive prospect. And as a result, rates of Somali piracy plummeted, and Big Mouth decided to retire. It was in early 2013 he announced his retirement, and that got a lot of sort of local and piracy-related press and, you know, was viewed quite cynically as you've made your money, it's now getting a lot harder and you're trying to pivot to this rehabilitation image for yourself. I never was clear on how extensive the pirate-related press that James mentioned was, but I can imagine that an internship at Pirate Monthly would give a swashbuckling student a chance to help with some excellent articles. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Anyway, Big Mouth had shut himself off from the world of piracy and was, at least for his image, trying to make a fresh start. At the same time, Tise, the local governor who had flown from Minnesota to Mogadishu, had plenty to show for his time in charge. Things were starting to stabilize. It seemed like a good news story. But not everyone had moved on, and the crimes of the past weren't simply forgotten because of a retirement announcement. Around this time, Tisse received a tantalizing email. It was from a man named Eunice Collier, a Belgian filmmaker who wanted to make a documentary about piracy. He explained that he wanted to give Tisse and his associates a chance to set the record straight about what they had been doing in Somalia. It was sold as a romanticization of this David and Goliath story, if you will, or like, it's an easy story to sell, frankly. And that's how they pitched it to him was, oh, you know, you're portrayed this one way in the media. We want to hear your side of the story. Tisse agreed to meet with the filmmakers. They flew him out to New York and put him up at a Trump hotel. The meeting went really well. But the documentary couldn't work unless they had more actual pirates involved, they said. So they needed Tisse to make an introduction to Big Mouth. And Big Mouth, for his part, was interested, eager to try to fix what he saw as misconceptions about Somali pirates. 
so he was the one actually that the Belgian police first contacted. He was a small American, that kind of more international background. They had contacted him and spoke with him for a couple months. Afweni, by the sounds of it, was skeptical of, of traveling out internationally. I think he knew there was a lot of heat on him. You know, this has not been <laughs> documented anywhere, but I think timing-wise, this was right around when uh, the Captain Phillips movie came out. And, you know, I have heard it that, you know, he was quite angry at that portrayal of, like, it wasn't telling the proper story. And I think that actually was quite a motivating factor. The documentary got the green light. With Tisse securing Big Mouth's involvement, everything was on track. But then Eunice Collier got back in touch, and he explained that the security situation in Somalia just wasn't good enough to fly the film crew in to make the documentary. There was too much risk. So instead, they offered to fly both men to Belgium, where they could make the movie in the safety of a big-budget studio. And for Big Mouth, it appeared to be just another interview opportunity, where he could recast his image to how he saw himself, rather than how the world saw him. It wasn't about the money, it was about like his pride in managing his image and you know wanting to tell his story. He'd done a couple of big interviews. After months of talking back and forth, the two men, the pirate kingpin and his political ally, hopped on a plane and set off for Belgium. It did not go according to plan, at least not for them, starting with the welcome party that they received at the airport. He was just immediately arrested at the airport and taken into custody. Eunice Collier, the supposed filmmaker, was actually with Belgian law enforcement. And, as This American Life reported in a former episode about this case, Belgian law enforcement had found Afweni's DNA on a coffee cup in the captain's cabin of the Pompeii, the Belgian ship that had been hijacked. You know, and it was this kind of slam-dunk case, which they had the all the forensic and eyewitness evidence for of this one particular case, even though, you know, he was certainly the mastermind behind dozens of hijackings. He was eventually sentenced in 2016 to 20 years for piracy and hostage-taking. But Big Mouth still had one reason for a little smirk. I know the Belgian prosecutors attempted to recover funds and were completely unsuccessful in that. They didn't get a dollar back from him. And where all that money goes, I, mean, you know, I believe it's sort of being controlled by his son still. While I was researching this story, I got in touch with Lydell Joubert, one of the world's leading experts on modern piracy at an organization called Stable Seas. She told me that in recent years, the global piracy hotspots have shifted. The days of piracy being synonymous with Somalia are long gone. Now, the true hotspots are places like the Straits of Malacca, near Indonesia and Malaysia, and the Gulf of Guinea off the coast of West Africa. Many of today's pirates aren't Somali, but Nigerian. But then, when I started asking Lydell about the case involving Big Mouth and the Belgian sting operation, she said something that intrigued me. You should really speak to Corolla Houtekammer, she said. So, I did. 
I'm Carola Houtenkamer. I'm a Dutch investigative journalist for NRC Handelsblad, which is one of the main newspapers in the Netherlands. As an investigative journalist, Carola has a bit of a nose for shady dealings, stories that don't quite add up. And she sensed that something was amiss when she started looking into the Dutch embassy in Abuja, the capital of Nigeria. We have been writing a lot about our Dutch oil company Shell and their business in Nigeria. And so we came across a story on the, that happened on the Dutch embassy in Nigeria. There was some mingling from the ambassador in the criminal investigation into Shell that was going on that caught our attention and we wrote about that. And as a follow-up from that story, we heard more things that were going on at the Dutch embassy in Abuja. Well, a bit of wild things and things that were or were not or maybe weren't allowed. And so we dug into that. And one of the stories was uh, the dealings of the Dutch with the hijacking of a Dutch ship for the coast of Nigeria. This is where things started to get even more interesting. So the ship is uh, called the FWN Rapide. It's a ship that sails under Dutch flag. It was in the 21st of April in 2018... Suddenly, 10 pirates climbed on board with their guns, with their AK-47s and their M16s. They climbed on board of the FWN Rapide to hijack the ship and to kidnap the crew. But they did not kidnap all of the crew. Two members of the crew were able to hide inside in the belly of the ship and they stayed behind. But the rest uh, was taken on small ships and sailed to the coast of Nigeria and to be hid somewhere in the jungle. When a ship's crew is taken hostage, it sets a whole series of events in motion. But it usually starts with the pirates making contact. The hijackers, they get into contact with the wharf, with the owner of the ship. And they say, look, we want millions and millions of dollars pay, otherwise you will never see your crew again. Again, if you're interested in how these ransoms work, go back to the ransom episode in season one, where we cover that in depth. But for our purposes here, it's worth noting that neither government involved in this situation sanctions ransom payments being paid to pirates, because paying them can only encourage further piracy. There are many hijackings, many kidnappings, and always the Nigerian police or the Navy has to get involved. And it's a real business there, and Nigeria doesn't want it. So they say to all the foreign countries, please do not pay ransom money because this will not stop. Now, the Dutch, who always have beautiful words about how you should do business in the world, they say... On the record, they say, we do not deal with terrorists, we do not deal with pirates, we do not pay ransom money, or we do not help in any other way. So that's the official line. But then you have a Dutch ship, and you have a missing crew with Ukrainians and Russians and Filipinos, but they sail under Dutch flag, and they're lost. So what are you going to do? Regardless of the government's official positions, the company that owned the FWN Rapide wanted its ship and its employees to get rescued. 
The owner of the ship calls the insurance company. The insurance company calls a German company, a sort of consultancy company. It's called Toribos. And what they do, they specialize in kidnappings of uh, high-value net people, high-net-value people, and a kidnapping of crews. And so they send a German negotiator, Mr. Rutke. They send it to the Netherlands. They send him to the Netherlands. And he has to deal with the pirates. And they call every day. There's a telephone call between uh, the two of them to negotiate the ransom money. The negotiation is left to this German negotiator and the pirate. And they end up paying a price of about $340,000. It's much less than what the pirates wanted, but the Dutch are very thrifty and the pirates complain, they want to go back to their wives. So this, and the, one of the crew is, has malaria and he's very ill. So everybody has to hurry up. And so they negotiate this ransom money. It wasn't the biggest score, though it was still a lot of cash. But there was one problem. But then there's a question. How will you get $340,000 to Nigeria? And then comes the help, as we reconstructed it, the help of the Dutch embassy. So what happens, we found out, and this is completely left out of the criminal investigation file, is that the police liaison of the Dutch embassy in Abuja flies to the Netherlands, takes back the ransom money. Smuggling cash through airports isn't easy, and $340,000 in a suitcase is particularly difficult. But this diplomatic smuggler had one major advantage. He has diplomatic status, so his luggage is or is not checked on the airport. You cannot take $340,000 in your suitcase, but he can. And he flies back to Abuja and he puts the money in the safe of the embassy. No one knows it, but the staff knows it. The staff sees it happening and they get really angry. They say, look, this is Nigeria, but that doesn't mean that you can just do anything you like. What, what is this for money laundering transaction? What the hell is everybody doing? And then, this diplomatic standoff over whether the Dutch embassy can facilitate this payment just abruptly ends. Somebody comes in the embassy, somebody they don't know, he takes the money out of the safe and transports it via this private security company in Nigeria with heavily armed people, goes into the jungle and delivers the money at pirates. And then he can take the crew back. It worked. But nobody has to know about it. Nobody has to know. And, and in the news, it just says $340,000 is paid to the pirates. The crew is released because that's got known, the, the ransom money. But the role of the Dutch government is completely left out of this. And then you see that the beautiful words, the firm words of the Dutch government, uh, well, they don't hold in real life so well. At first glance, this seems like it would be the end of the story. A ship got hijacked. The Dutch government facilitated the ransom payment secretly. Corolla and her team exposed it. And it's an embarrassment for the Dutch government. But nobody has been brought to justice. And that means that the pirates can just keep on hijacking ships. Except in this story, the pirates made a mistake. There are only so many people in any criminal organization that are savvy enough to successfully negotiate ransom payments. And that means that when you find someone who's good at it, you're going to keep asking them to step up, to get on the phone, to talk turkey over how much money you're going to get paid. And that's exactly what these Nigerian pirates did. Except this time, 
the German negotiator took notice. Mr. Rutke from uh, Toribos, he recognizes the voice of the pirate. He says, look, I, we had a, recently we had another hijacking and another kidnapping, and I think it's the same man. This is where the story takes a bit of a weird turn. It turns out that one of the hostages, well, he became friends with the pirate ringleader, a man known in court documents, allegedly, as Mr. Lobia. And they want to find Mr. Lobia because the German negotiator thinks that's the man. And then they pull another trick. Finally, they're able to track down the pirates, Mr. Lobia, because one of the crew members was kept in contact. He somehow had warm feelings towards the pirates, or it was a Stockholm syndrome, or anyway, they exchanged cell phone numbers and they kept into contact. And even though there's this sort of friendly back-and-forth WhatsApping going on between the pirate and his former hostage, the former hostage does agree to share the pirate's cell phone number with the Dutch police. So now the police have a way to contact him, possibly even to track him. But they can't arrest him because there's no extradition treaty. So they have to find a different way to capture him and bring him to justice. They pretend to be a new employer. Using what I think is quite a thin pretext, they get in touch with Mr. Lobia and they pose as a maritime security company that's looking for former pirates to help advise them on how to avoid pirates in the future. And they say, look, you're Mr. Lobia. We have a real nice job for you in the security business, and well-paid. And Lobia, who's fed up with being a pirate, thinks, okay, I'm going to go for it. But the person calling Mr. Lobia explains that he'll need to move out of West Africa and fly to South Africa in order to ink the contract and start his new job. And then the man at the other side of the line says, yeah, why don't you come to uh, South Africa and then we'll sign a contract and uh, we have a real nice job for you. So Lobia gets on a plane, flies to South Africa, thinking he's going to have a new life. And to be fair, Mr. Lobia would get to start a new life, though perhaps not the one that he was envisioning. But there he runs into the South African police, is put in a jail, and then after a year is sent to the Netherlands. Whoops. Another pirate, another stupid decision to get lured into a different jurisdiction to be arrested. At first, this story just sort of cracked me up. Like, how can you be so stupid? But the more I thought about it, the more it lingered with me in a few unexpected ways. First off, if someone like Mr. Lobia is thrilled with the idea of escaping piracy for a better job offer, it raises that age-old question. How much criminal activity is driven by greed and depraved character? And how much is driven by economic circumstances? That's a question that's central to understanding how to address corruption and criminality, because you can't figure out the right solutions until you figure out the causes of illicit activity. But then there's a second question to consider. And this is the one that Corolla gravitated toward. How much deception is allowed when it comes to law enforcement luring people across international boundaries under false pretenses? Well, Lobia is in jail now and the court case is going on. And this is one of the questions which is on the table. Was that a legal action or not? This is also the bit of the podcast where you get to learn a fun Dutch word, adding to your Dutch-related vocabulary of words like stroopwafels, which, by the way, are delicious. The word for that in the Netherlands is 
pseudo-cop, which means something like pseudo-buying. And it's something you usually do when you're trying to catch uh, drug dealers or illegal car dealers. You, as a policeman, you pretend to be a customer and you walk up to somebody, you arrange a deal. And at the moment the drugs is handed over to you, you arrest somebody and you say, look, I'm catching you in the act. And the prosecutor says this luring of Mr. Lobia to South Africa was a form of pseudo, pseudo-cop. Now, I'm not particularly sympathetic to Mr. Lobia personally. These hijackings, as we noted before, are horrific crimes that create severe trauma for their victims. So I'm not going to worry too much about the idea that he was lied to and that he was stupid enough to fall for a reasonably obvious ruse from the Dutch police. But I do think his case exposes how weak international protocols are when it comes to transnational law enforcement. In the 21st century, so many criminal networks stretch across borders, And some of those borders can provide their biggest protection. When it comes to stopping illicit activity, more international law enforcement cooperation agreements need to be signed, so that you don't need to get a lucky break with a WhatsApp conversation to catch a pirate. Mr. Lobia is a case in point, too, because he wasn't a pirate kingpin, just one of the pirate foot soldiers. He's facing a lengthy sentence for crimes that he participated in, but didn't orchestrate. And meanwhile, with the rare exception of people like Big Mouth in Somalia, the big fish of crime and corruption usually go free. As with so much in life, the captains get away with it, while those who are in the lower ranks are forced to walk the plank. So we'll see how it ends. But the evidence is, it doesn't look good for Mr. Lobia, I have to say. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, or at least learned something new, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen. And if you're feeling really generous, tell your friends about the show or post about it on social media. We don't make Power Corrupts to make money, but it does cost money to make. So if you want to help keep us editorially independent and keep the episodes coming, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash powercorrupts. Or you could pre-order my new book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. It's the most fun thing that I've ever written, and pre-orders play a really big role in a book's success. So I hope you'll consider ordering a copy, and even better if it's from an independent bookstore. In the next episode, we're going to go to The Hague, the home of war criminal trials, the place that I went for my last pre-pandemic research trip, to watch the trial of a former child soldier who rose through the ranks to become a terrifying warlord. But the question we're going to ask is, was he just a perpetrator, or was he also a victim? This episode was written and narrated by me, Brian Kloss. The executive producer was George McDonough, who also did the sound editing. The Power Corrupts theme song was composed by Scott Holmes. Special thanks to Pietro Guna and Leah Clemidio, who helped research this episode. Goodbye for now.